0: Our scripture lesson tonight comes from the book of Judges, Judges starting in chapter 10, verse 1. Hear now the word of our God starting in Judges chapter 10, verse 1. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Puah, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, and he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim, and he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. After him arose Yair, the Gileadite, who judged Israel twenty-two years, and he had thirty sons who rode on thirty donkeys, and they had thirty cities called Havot-Yair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Yair died and was buried in Camon. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord, and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For eighteen years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan, in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you and and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand? Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in this time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead, and the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said one to another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tov. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me, that you have come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Yabok and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore it peaceably. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites, But when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon, But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon, and Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to our country. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory, so Sihon gathered gathered all his people together and encamped at Yahaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Yabok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel or did he ever go to war with them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages and in Aroa and its villages and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from and he passed on, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Beneath, twenty cities, and as far as Abel-Keramim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. The story of Jephthah reminds us that God takes this one who had no inheritance among his people and uses him by the Spirit of the Lord To bring an inheritance to his people, and to restore and preserve the inheritance of his people. There's, we're, 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 I'm not, I'm not going to try to tell the whole story of Jephthah in one sermon. Uh, We've already gotten a hint to what's coming, and that's its own text. So we'll we'll focus on that next time. But I should mention that in chapter 12, uh, after the story of Jephthah, there are three more of these minor judges. Uh, so there's, there are these five judges, two at the beginning and three at the end, who sort of serve as a bracket around the story of Jephthah. Uh, and you may, you may recall that that Gideon, the, the, the previous judge, had had 70 sons, truly a, a royal-sized family. I mean, he, had, he, had, he had insisted that, oh, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you, but then everything he does makes him sound like he's trying to be king. Uh, and after the death of Abimelech, which means my father is king, and that was Gideon's son. After the death of Abimelech, there were many sort of Gideon wannabes, you might say. We have Ya'ir, thirty sons on thirty donkeys. Uh, these sort of this is a pe- sign of you know, peace and tranquility. If you have thirty sons on thirty donkeys, Ibzan will have thir- thirty sons and thirty daughters which will be 60 alliances, uh, marriages outside the clan, which signal his importance. Even Abdon will have 40 sons and 30 grandsons on 70 donkeys, which approaches Gideon's 70 sons. And in contrast to all of these rather prolific judges is Jephthah, a man whose birth is less than honorable, Abimelech was at least the son of a concubine. Jephthah is the son of a prostitute. And Jephthah has one daughter, no sons. So in many respects, Jephthah is is, is sort of the least of all of these characters. But as Paul will say, God chooses to use the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Uh, we, hear, we hear first about these two minor judges. There's, there's Tola, which, which means worm in Hebrew. And as, as such, he's a fitting counterpart to Abimelech. He is not portrayed as self-aggrandizing, but simply as a, a man of Issachar who saved Israel. And he judged Israel 23 years and then he died. That's an awesome story. I mean, sure, there's a whole lot more to it, which we're not told. but the point being simply, here was this man who saved Israel and judged Israel for these years and then he died faithfully. He's from Issachar and he rules from Ephraim near, near Shechem where Abimelech's misrule had wreaked such havoc, but he simply did his job faithfully and went to his reward. And then Ya'ir arises in Gilead, and this is on the on the east side of the Jordan River. As we've seen, the various judges come from all over the different parts of Israel, and none of them are said to govern the whole of Israel. Most of them seem to be rather regional in their jurisdiction, uh, and and that's where it's it's important to recognize the very decentralized world of the time. I've I've commented from time to time in this series about the Bronze Age collapse at this point in history, where. All the superpowers of the ancient world fell apart at the same time. The Mycenaeans and the Hittites pretty much just kind of disappear. Their kingdoms evaporate. The powerful city of Ugarit in Syria was suddenly depopulated. You don't really hear much about Babylon or Assyria or even Egypt because those nations are all attempting to rebuild after the devastation caused by the collapse of their economic and political structures. In other words, the time of the period of the judges is a time when the centralized governments of the previous age had collapsed. It was a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And Yair, the Gileadite, is one who segues forward to Jephthah because Jephthah is also a Gileadite. And Yair has 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. They had 30 cities. Now, that's an inheritance. 30 sons, each with his own city. But watch what happens when Yair dies. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. I've mentioned as in, the, in our series on Joshua that the Philistines were at this time just beginning to settle on the coasts. Uh, Joshua tells us that, that that Joshua conquered the cities of the Philistines probably before the Philistines did, back when they were still Canaanite cities. So Joshua defeats these Canaanite cities, but isn't able to take possession of them yet, and then the Philistines come along and take them over, and they become Philistine cities, basically. Uh, who are the Philistines? Because I mean, really, they're, they're just make, beginning to make an appearance in the book of Judges. They've just, we've, we've heard about them occasionally, but at this point, up till this point, they've been sort of a newly arriving people on the coast. They seem to have been a group from the Aegean area between the the, the sea between modern Greece and modern Turkey. These were those who were displaced through the conflicts that that Homer calls the Trojan War. Uh, now, what was? It's a far. It's it's you know Homer tells tells this one story that's really exaggerated in many ways. But what Homer's remembering was the conflicts in the Aegean and, he's, and, and which there were lots of refugees from this Aegean conflict. And some of those refugees are called the Philistines, the sea peoples who settle, settle along the coast. Their burial practices, their naming practices, all have connections with, uh, with the Aegean region. And the name of the, the Philistines is, is used just a few times in Joshua and in the early chapters of Judges, and really here in chapter 10, the focus is still on the Ammonites. So the Philistines are probably just getting settled along the coast. Uh, the Egyptians, after trying to fight them off, finally say, "Okay, fine, you guys can have this coastal area of, of Canaan, and basically, if you'll just, if you'll just." Uh, they become sort of a client state of Egypt. So the Philistines will stop fighting against Egypt. Egypt will let them have this region. So the Philistines are getting settled in. And so probably what's going on is they've formed now a defensive alliance with the Ammonites because it doesn't sound like the Philistines are really doing anything at this point. The Philistines are just sort of allied with the Ammonites. The Ammonites are the big problem. Uh, The Philistines will become a big problem, but we won't hear about them much yet once again we hear the familiar story. Israel sins, turns to follow other gods, and Yahweh hands them over to their enemies. And this time it's the Ammonites. Now, the Ammonites were descendants of Lot who lived east of the Jordan. Uh, This is, if you recall, the story of of Lot uh, after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, his two daughters each have incestuous relations, relations with their father. And one daughter bears Moab, the other daughter bears Ammon. And this, this is sort of the origin story for the Ammonites and the Moabites. And now for 18 years, they have been oppressing the people of Israel in the Transjordan region on the eastern side of the Jordan River. This is the region of Gilead where Yair had been judge. This is the region of the, of the two and a half tribes who had received their inheritance on the east side of the Jordan These are the tribes that had had built the the, the altar of Ed, the altar of Witness, um, uh, to to remind the the tribes on the other side of the Jordan that we are still part of the same people. We both belong to the Lord. And verse 9 tells us that the Ammonites even crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim. So we've got got the, the, the east side of the Jordan is overrun, but even on the west side of the Jordan there's trouble. In verses 10 to 16, we hear actually the, the best repentance so far in the book of Judges. In the past, we heard how Israel cried out to the Lord, but here there's a clear acknowledgement of sin and a plea for mercy. They cried out to the Lord saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And now the Lord himself responds. He had sent a messenger, the angel of the Lord in chapter 2, and a prophet in chapter 6. Now we hear the voice of the Lord directly, but it does not bring comfort. For the Lord, verse 11, said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the, Philist- the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. You want to serve other gods? Fine. Let them save you when trouble comes. God will not settle for mere lip service. Just saying the words doesn't mean much. There must be an actual turning away from sin and toward God. True repentance bears fruit. Israel had cried out to him time after time. It's it's actually a pretty familiar story for most of us. Because, you know, when things are good, we forget the Lord. Then then when things get bad, oh, I need some help over here. Now we remember the Lord. And God's like, that's not the way you ought to live. Oops, our, our enemies are oppressing us. We better call on Yahweh to take care of it. And time after time, Yahweh has been merciful. He sent a deliverer. He called them to to believe in him. He demonstrated his marvelous deeds before their eyes. But this time, if you want him to act, you will have to bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. If you want to serve another God, don't bother calling on me when you're in trouble. And notice how Israel responds. They repent. They put away their foreign gods and serve the Lord. And notice, notice their response. They're, they say, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. They actually bear fruit in keeping with repentance. They put away the foreign gods from among them. And they serve the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Now, that's, that's actually a pretty good translation. And if it seems a little ambiguous to you, good. Because that's the way it was intended. It, perhaps a slightly more literally way of putting it, we, he was exasperated because of the troubles of Israel. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean that he's that it's because Israel uh, is troubling him? <laughs> or is it because of the, the troubles they're going through? Um It's it's ultimately not the quality of Israel's repentance that results in their salvation, but the quality of God's compassion. But also the ambiguity of God's attitude toward Israel is seen in the omission of a familiar phrase at this point. Because in the pattern of the book of Judges, the next thing we should hear is, and the Lord raised up a judge, a deliverer. he doesn't now certainly God is sovereign over all things but the absence of this phrase suggests that yes God has become impatient over the misery of Israel he has become exasperated because of the troubles of Israel but as we saw back in chapter 2 there's a there's a literary pattern in this book The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and went after other gods. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers. And then the Lord raised up judges who saved them. And when the judge dies, they turn back. And that literary pattern was followed very closely for the first couple of judges. But with each judge, another piece drops out of the literary pattern. Just as the literary pattern of the book is falling apart, So also Israel is falling apart. And meanwhile, while Israel is falling apart, the Ammonites are coming. Israel has repented of their sins. They have fruit in keeping with repentance. They have removed the foreign gods. Now they gather at Mizpah in order to repel the Ammonites. But God hasn't done anything yet. The Lord has not raised up a deliverer. So the people said to one another, Who is the man? We the people will raise up a deliverer for Gilead. Now, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Should they have waited for the Lord? Or should they have... The book of Judges is not going to answer that question. It's really easy for us to be like, oh yes, we know the answer, but the text doesn't answer the question. The point is that Israel is a mess and is increasingly messy and that like Gideon Jephthah also is a mess but again we come back to the question we saw with Gideon who is the man was was there a better option than Gideon is there a better option than Jephthah who, who should have done this this is where very often we find ourselves in places in life where it's not that You're the best and most wonderful possible person for the job. It's rather that, no, God's just put you there to do the thing He's called you to do. And it's not that you're the best. That's okay. You don't have to be the best. I mean, we have this this whole preoccupation about, you know, I think we see this, you know, our kids are like, oh, but, you know, so and so is the best at this, so and so is the best at that. I'm not the best at anything. Well, that's okay. We're not called to be the best. We're called to do the thing that God puts in front of us to do. Whether you're the best at it or not doesn't matter. It's simply doing the thing. And that's where Jephthah is... Um, okay, he's, he's a mighty warrior and he's the son of a prostitute. He will not inherit with his brothers. He's driven away from his brothers. He has no inheritance with them. He's an interesting character. Like Gideon, he's described as a mighty warrior... Like Gideon, he begins as a nobody and ends as a tyrant. Both are clothed with the spirit of the Lord in order to defeat their enemies. But then wind up in a conflict with Ephraim after their victory. Both wind up brutalizing not not only the the enemy, but also their fellow Israelites. And so they're these ambiguous characters. But Jephthah is also like Abimelech, the son of Gideon. Both are born outside of proper wedlock. Both surround themselves with worthless men. Both are opportunists who negotiate themselves into leadership. Both slaughter their own relatives. But unlike Abimelech, Jephthah is also a deliverer whom Yahweh uses to save his people. Talk about using the weak and foolish things of the world to accomplish his purposes. So the people of Gilead are, are looking for a leader. Uh, the situation is, reminds us of after the death of Joshua, back in chapter 1, when who will go before us to, to, to defeat our enemies. And so they call Jephthah back from the wilderness. Now, notice that unlike Abimelech, Jephthah does not put himself forward. He's, he's not looking for the job, as it were. Leaders who put themselves forward are not a good thing. They have too much ambition and pride. It's one of the reasons why the Presbyterian Church does not allow men to nominate themselves for office. There must be an external call from the Church, matched by the internal call from the Holy Spirit. But no one may put himself forward. He must be nominated by the congregation, trained and certified by the elders and elected by the congregation. And it's It's a model that's actually built on the various texts, not just this one. But here you see a call from the elders of Gilead. Jephthah is a reluctant leader, like Gideon in some respects. He recalls how they drove him out of Gilead and wonders whether they will prove faithful now. Now, many many have noticed that Jephthah's response to Gilead has a lot of parallels with the Lord's response to Israel. Israel had rejected the Lord, but then they come crawling to him later asking for help. Now, Gilead had rejected Jephthah, but now they come crawling to Jephthah for help. And when the Lord objects, they have insisted upon their newfound faithfulness. When Jephthah objects, Gilead insists on their newfound faithfulness. So there's a way in which Jephthah is is sort of asking the same questions that God had. Are you really serious about this? And so the elders of Gilead swear an oath, calling Yahweh as witness that they will be faithful. The Lord will be witness between us, if we do not do as you say. And with the memory of Abimelech and the idolatry of the men of Shechem fresh in our minds, this is a good start for Jephthah. Jephthah declares his reliance upon the Lord. The elders swear their oath with Yahweh as witness, as they should. They're saying, may Yahweh judge us if we are false to our word. And it concludes with Jephthah's installation as leader in verse 11. Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead. The people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. He does... All things in the name of the Lord. This is good. Having been faithfully installed as the judge and ruler of Gilead, Jephthah then turns to the king of the Ammonites. Now the the ensuing dialogue reveals that the Ammonites now claim the whole Transjordan region as their own. Now this had been the land of the Amorites prior to this. Uh, Now, But the Ammonites now claim this is their land. Jephthah hoped to resolve the situation peacefully, so he enters negotiations. He lays out the the history of the encounter between Moses and the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, and Amorites. He retells the story from Numbers 21 and Deuteronomy 1 and 2. Uh, It's it's clear. Jephthah understands understands the mighty deeds of the Lord. He knows his Bible. He remembers the history of redemption and how God brought Israel into their inheritance. It was the Lord who gave Sihon and the Amorites into the hand of Israel. It was the Lord who dispossessed the Amorites. Now, is it possible that at some point in the past the Ammonites had controlled that land? That's possible. But when Israel came into the land, it wasn't the Ammonites who lived there, it was the Amorites. There's two different, very different groups of people. And so he concludes from this that The Ammonites have possession of what Chemosh, their god, gave to them, while Israel has what Yahweh gave to them. Now, I realize probably nobody is such an expert in Middle Eastern religion that that troubles you. But Chemosh isn't the name of the god of the Ammonites. Milcom is. Chemosh is the god of the Moabites. Now, some scholars have been like, oh, you know, sort of, you know some sort of mistake. My hunch is that that Jephthah kind of thumbing his nose at them. going like, come on, whatever your God's name is. because you know, so like obviously Jephthah doesn't think much of their gods. So, he, it's also, you know, he, he's talking about both the Moabites and the Ammonites. So it could be that he just uses the name of the Moabite God. That's, but what, he's, he's, I think he's, trying to insult them to a certain extent. Now, part of it's also, you might be puzzled, why does he say that Chemosh gave them the land? But part of it's that the Bible never disputes the existence of Chemosh, Baal, the various gods of the nations. What the Bible disputes is their power. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 4, we know that an idol is nothing in the world that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. The gods of the nations exist, but they're not gods. Later in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul will identify their sacrifices as the table of demons. Sure. Chemosh is, a, is a, in a sense, a real being, but he's a demon. He's not a god in the same sense that the Lord is God. So, in the end, Jephthah acknowledges Yahweh as the judge of nations and appeals to him to decide the matter. And... The, and then he turns and says, look, the, did Balak, content, you know, did, did he try to regain this land? You know, why did you wait so long? And then he says, I, I haven't sinned against you. You do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But predictably, the, the Ammonites weren't all that impressed by this speech. For 18 years, they've been having their way with Israel. So they're like, Puh. Forget you. We're, we're, and it's only here and at this point that the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah. Up until this point, he was simply the people's ruler who had been selected by the people in order to lead them. But now we're told that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. Only Otniel and Gideon, among prior judges, shared this gift. But when the Spirit of the Lord is poured out upon him, the people flock to the banner of the judge. This had happened to Gideon. Gideon had been a nobody. And all of a sudden, Israel, Israel, people from all sorts of tribes are gathering to follow Gideon. The same way with Jephthah. From Gilead and Manasseh, the people of Israel come to him and he led them against the Ammonites. Now, then... We'll come back to Jephthah's vow next time. I'll just say here, the the structure of the vow is is typical of Old Testament vows. If you do what I ask, then I will do this for you. Uh, it's so, but we'll come back we'll come back to that next time. But. For now, it's sufficient to note that Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them and the Lord gave them into his hand and he struck them from Aroer to the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 cities and as far as Abel-Karamim with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. So the Lord gives the Ammonites into his hand. The Lord gives him the victory. He strikes 20 cities and subdues the Ammonites. That's more than any previous judge has done. The early judges simply delivered Israel from their oppressors by driving their enemies out. And then that was it. Gideon had gone to the next level. He didn't invade, but he does a surgical strike with his 300 men, taking out the kings of Midian deep into their own territory And then, you know, it's sort of this this sort of guerrilla tactic that he uses to take out their kings and bring, bring them back captive to Israel where he kills them. Now, Jephthah demonstrates the rising power of Israel as he strikes 20 cities and subdues the Ammonites. We're no longer talking about just defending our borders. We're now talking about taking it back to the enemy on their own turf. Now, it's an important point for Israel's history because in a couple more generations, David will subdue all the nations around Israel. Now, it, that doesn't just come out of nowhere. The period of the judges was chaotic. You know, everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, but a coalition of tribes is growing. the The right sort of man will be able to lead them to establish a new kingdom. So, that's part of just part of why I do bring up the, the Bronze Age collapse from time to time because there are no major powers around Israel that prevent... Under most of ancient history, there's no way that a, a David could have emerged. But at this time, with this power vacuum in the Middle East, there is the moment that God has been preparing and God orchestrating all of history for so that the time for David to arise is at hand. But there's also a way in which we need to see in Jephthah that, as is often the case, Old Testament heroes are deeply flawed heroes. Hebrews 11 names Jephthah, as well as Gideon and others, as, as heroes of faith. And when you look at Jephthah, you're like, how, how does this guy get to be called a hero of faith? But we're reminded in this that God knows that we are flawed. Our faithfulness is not the reason why God saves us. He saves us because of his great compassion. He saves us because he knows that we are dust. He knows that our greatest heroes are deeply flawed. And so He sent His only begotten Son. He sent the Word who was in the beginning with the Father, the One who was with God, the One who was God, so that the Word might become flesh and dwell among us. He clothed Himself with humanity's weakness. He suffered all for the sufferer's sake. He took up chains for the sake of the prisoner. He was condemned for the sake of the doomed. He was counted with sinners, an outcast, driven away from humanity. He had no earthly inheritance. But as the Father gave to him the gift of the Holy Spirit, he now pours out that same Spirit on his people. So God takes the weak and foolish things of this world and uses them to bring about his salvation. This is where, this is where again, it, When it, what is it that God has called you to do? well it's not it's not because you're the greatest it's because in your weakness in your frailty, he has promised to use that which he gives because he gives to you his spirit to fill you to equip you to help you to do the thing that he has called you to do and with that he with that calling he gives you himself I mean ultimately this is this is why I keep mentioning uncreated grace in my sermons because because God gives us himself. He doesn't just give us a little strength, a little help, a little thing. No, he gives us himself to, to give us the strength and the, and the wisdom that we need. So let's pray. Almighty God, our, our Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks and praise for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have delivered us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son of your love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And we praise you that that you have done this and that you have, have accomplished your great purposes in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray, O triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that your gospel would continue to bring forth fruit throughout the world, that it would grow and flourish in our hearts in our lives and indeed throughout all the earth. We pray for those who proclaim the grace of God in truth, for those who preach your word throughout all the world, that you would give them boldness and power to proclaim the gospel faithfully as they ought. And as your word goes forth, may it accomplish the purpose for which you sent it, that every knee may bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of, of you, our Heavenly Father. Have mercy upon your church and preserve her from heresy and schism, Grant that those who are called by your name would demonstrate that faith in Christ Jesus and love for all the saints that is the fruit of our hope. And grant, O faithful Father, that we might be filled with the knowledge of your will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Grant that we might know the mind of Christ, that we might reflect his glory and his mercy to those around us, that the mind that was in Christ Jesus might also dwell in us by your grace. May we... Set the interests of others ahead of our own, just as your beloved Son has done and does in us. May we walk worthy of the Lord, pleasing you fully, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Do not let our knowledge of you be vain and empty. But let us let it produce righteousness and peace in every home, justice and mercy in every relationship, as husbands and wives, as parents and children, as friends and neighbors and colleagues, as as elders and deacons in your church, as as your people in every area of life. Strengthen us, we pray, with all might, according to your glorious power. For in ourselves we are weak, and in our flesh there is nothing good. But give us patience and joy in the midst of suffering. Have mercy, O oh Lord, upon those who are sick and afflicted, upon those who are, who are enduring trials of, of mind and of soul and of, and of body, that you would have mercy upon those who are suffering, even upon those who approach death, That because we never know the hour of our death. So help us always to live in such a way that we would never be afraid to die, knowing that whether we live or die, we belong body and soul to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ.